the Bobby Bones Show. Bones. Hey guys, Bobby here. No post show today, uh, but I did want to share an episode from a podcast on the Nashville Podcast Network. It is an episode of Movie Mike's podcast, and Mike comes on the show sometimes, talks about movies, and uh, he's pretty much an expert in them. So I want you to listen to this, and if you like it, go subscribe to Movie Mike's movie podcast. He interviews actors and directors. He does spoiler-free movie reviews, and he has a lot of movie topics that are pretty fun. He talks about movies in depth. I mean, let's go. Movie Mike's movie podcast. On this episode that you're going to hear here, Mike is talking about movies turning 30, 20, and 10 years old in 2022, so it'll make you feel old. And he's breaking down the top 10 highest-grossing movies at the box office from each of those years. So, I mean, you're going to hear the movie 30 years ago and be like, dang, that was 30 years, that sucks. It's fun movie nostalgia. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and listen for a brand new episode every Monday. But here we go. It's Movie Mike's Movie Podcast right here on the Bobby Bone Show feed. Bobby Bones! In a world where everyone and their mother has a podcast, one man stands to infiltrate the ears of listeners like never before in a movie podcast. A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. I want to talk about movies celebrating birthdays this year, movies turning 10, 20, and 30 years old in 2022. We'll get into what movies crushed it at the box office, what movies took home best picture, and also what movies took home worst picture at the Razzies of each year. But most importantly, if I can only take one movie from each of these years, I'll pick which one that is and which ones would be the only one I could watch forever. So let's start back at movies turning 30 years old this year. These are all movies that came out in 1992. Before we get into the biggest 10 movies at the box office this year, let's just talk about the landscape of 1992. I would have been turning one year old this year. So at this point in my life, I had probably not seen any movie yet. If I had, I was a baby and didn't know what was going on. In pop culture, the biggest thing you would hear in music dominating the radio waves would be Nirvana. And everything else when it comes to technology was in its very early stages. In 1992, there were about 26 websites, so really the internet wasn't a thing yet. So when it came to watching movies, streaming was so far away. We were still in the VHS days, going to the movie days. This was even long before DVDs. And I think the movies that came out during this year are a big reflection of that. These are the highest grossing movies in the United States, according to Box Office Mojo in 1992. At number 10 is Under Siege with $83 million. At number 9 is The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, bringing in $88 million. At number 8 is Aladdin, bringing in $99 million. At number 7 is A League of Their Own, which made $107 million. At number 6 is Basic Instinct, bringing in $117 million. And then we'll get into the top five, which are the ones I want to break down a little bit more. At number five, bringing in $120 million is Wayne's World. And with all these movies, they're obviously not ones that I watched the year they came out because, again, I was one year old. But this is a movie I probably watched years later. Maybe I was six or seven years old. And Wayne's World was never really a comedy that I really got into or identified with or found even all that funny. I like the characters themselves, Wayne and Garth, more than I actually like the entire idea of the movie. So when it comes to Wayne World, 
I probably enjoy the SNL sketches and watching those back more than I would sitting down to watch this movie. But I would say of all the sketches that got turned into movies from SNL, it's probably the most successful and the most beloved. And I get it and can see why, but I just don't think Wayne's World will ever be one of my favorites. At number four is Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, which made $136 million back in 1992, which was a lot of money. And that was greatly due to the success of the original, which came out just two years before this one. I rewatched Home Alone 2 over the holiday break. And I got to say, that movie is way too long. The first one, Home Alone, is a quick hour and 43 minutes, but they really went for making a longer movie about the exact same thing with Home Alone 2 coming in at two hours. And it feels like two hours. And while I think Home Alone is one of the best Christmas movies ever made, Home Alone 2... It lacks the original sentiment of the first movie, the original warmth of the first movie, and taking Kevin out of his home and putting him on the streets of New York feels less like a good Christmas movie and more like a cash grab. So I could actually go without ever seeing Home Alone 2 again. Right above that one at number three is Sister Act, which made $139 million in 1992. When I posted this on Twitter and Facebook, There were a lot of big Sister Act fans. And what I'm seeing in this top five is a lot of comedy, which was, I feel like, a lot more prevalent in the 90s. And a movie with Whoopi Goldberg as the lead, I don't think it gets any more 90s than this one. I was surprised, though, to see this one make more money than Wayne's World in this year. I feel like Wayne's World is a movie people talk about more as being one of their favorite comedies. But if you want to go back and rewatch that one, rewatch Sister Act, it's actually available on Disney+. Plus. So that's at number three. And number two is one I'm surprised by. A movie that brought in $144 million in 1992 is Lethal Weapon 3. Lethal Weapon was a very successful action buddy cop movie the original one came out in 1987 and they went on to release two three and four all in the 90s and are possibly working on another one now when it came to who i wanted as my action star in the 90s i never really thought of mel gibson being that person my mind tends to go to actors more like sylvester stallone jackie chan arnold schwarzenegger bruce willis or even will smith I would even take John claude Van Damme over Mel Gibson. But I think the one thing you can't deny is Mel Gibson as an A-list actor who sells tickets, especially in the 90s. So number two is Lethal Weapon 3. But at number one, the highest grossing movie of 1992 was Batman Returns, bringing in $161 million. And when it comes to Batman movies, for a long time, this was my favorite Batman movie. And if it wouldn't have been for Christopher Nolan and The Dark Knight, this would remain my favorite Batman movie. I thought it had the best villains with Penguin, Catwoman. So those are the top highest grossing movies of this year. When it comes to the Oscars, best picture was Silence of the Lambs. The worst movie, which was voted on by the Razzies, was a movie called Shining Through. It was a World War II drama starring Michael Douglas and Melanie Griffith. Big box office bomb, but not only that, critics hated it, so it was the worst movie of the year voted on by the Razzies. But some other movies to note that came out in 1992. I feel like 1992 was VHS heaven. You had movies like Three Ninjas, Mighty Ducks, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and Beethoven. These were all movies I just remember throwing in a VHS tape, hearing the warm fuzz of it coming on, pressing that play button, and watching these movies. There were also just some big dramas like Malcolm X, The Bodyguard, American Me, A Few Good Men, and a Quentin Tarantino classic with Reservoir Dogs coming out this year. And then you also had movies like Encino Man, My Girl, Of Mice and Men, Candyman, Pure Country, and A League of Their Own. 
So what it comes down to, if I could only take one movie from 1992, I would have to say, because it was my favorite Batman movie for a long time, it would be Batman Returns. I feel like that movie still holds up. You almost could watch it now and not even realize it was made in the 90s. But if I was able to make it a double feature, I would definitely take A League of Their Own with me as well. So overall, a pretty good year there in 1992. And now we'll move on to movies turning 20 years old this year. Back in 2002, I was turning 11 years old, going from fifth grade to sixth grade. I'm pretty sure I had a DVD player by this point. They became a little bit more popular in the 2000s. And then right around 01 and 02, they became more affordable to the point to where I could get one. And I don't think we realize how much DVDs changed how we watch movies at home. Before that, we were talking about in the 90s, it was all VHS tapes. But once the DVD player came around, I think the thing we were most kind of mind blown about was not having to rewind anymore or find the place you left off in a movie. You could throw a DVD in, either just skip scenes like the just the chapter feature was groundbreaking to us. And then I think the special features is what I love the most, watching the behind the scenes, watching things with commentary. That was groundbreaking when it came to DVDs. They were a little bit more expensive, but man, was it worth it. I think the hardest thing for me when buying DVDs back in the 2000s was deciding on which aspect ratio to, you could buy because I remember you could buy them in full screen version or in widescreen version. And for some reason, I was very into full screen. And I think in the 2000s, right when I got a DVD player, we stopped buying VHSs, bought everything on DVD, but would only go back and watch our old movies on VHS tapes. So if you ever had a VHS DVD combo, you know you probably grew up in the 90s and the 2000s. And if you turned on the radio in 2002, you probably heard this song. Yeah, How You Remind Me by Nickelback. But let's get into the biggest movies of the year. At number 10, bringing in $154 million was A Beautiful Mind, a movie that not only gained so much critical acclaim, but also performed really well at the box office, bringing in that amount of money, a movie that blew my mind the first time I watched it. It's very rare you see a movie do that well at the box office and also win a bunch of awards. A lot of the times, the movies that get nominated for the fancy awards don't really do so well. Sometimes they make like a million bucks, two million bucks, but this one bringing in $154 million back in 2002. At number nine is Ice Age bringing in $176 million. Talking about DVDs just a second ago, I think this is a DVD that was, I don't know, maybe required by law for every school to buy, but it felt like almost any time we had a movie day in school and they rolled out the TV cart with the DVD player now, we would watch Ice Age. At number eight was Men in Black 2 bringing in $190 million. At number seven was Austin Powers Gold Member making $212 million. At number six was Lord of the Rings The Two Towers bringing in $218 million. And then we get to the top five. At number five was My Big Fat Greek Wedding bringing in $223 million. Again, another surprise here is a rom-com bringing in that amount of money. I feel like the late 90s, early and mid-2000s were really like the prime spot for romantic comedies. The days of Hugh Grant and Matthew McConaughey, I feel like we're in full force in this time. Neither of them are in this movie, but just saying, I feel like a lot of people's favorite romantic comedies came out during this time, and the box office reflects that. At number four, Bringing in $227 million is Signs. 
I felt like more so than the movies that made more than this on this list, this is the movie that people talked about the most. And I think it was because M. Night Shyamalan, of course, always has the twist at the end. And there's just something about movies like this that people just want to share an experience together and then go on to talk about. And I felt like because it was about aliens and crop circles and we're always curious about, oh, do you believe in aliens and do you think they're real? And this one really kind of put that into perspective of what it would look like if they did make contact with Earth. And not only that, it had a scene that I think collectively we all had that jump scare moment while watching this movie. And probably my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie. I was also saying earlier, don't really like Mel Gibson in his action roles, but when it comes to his dramatic roles, I liked him in Signs. At number three, bringing in $243 million this year in 2002 was Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, a great sequel. A movie that was able to capture the same feeling of the first one and really set the tone for the rest of the franchise to the point that which each movie had its own identity and a movie that people camped out to buy tickets. It was all over the news. That's a thing that really doesn't happen anymore because I know Friday is still like the main release day for movies, but now you can catch a matinee on the Thursday before they come out. You don't have people waiting in line for tickets. But back when Harry Potter movies were coming out, it was an event to be had. The only thing we've seen in recent history was the last Spider-Man movie. But even that doesn't compare to what a midnight release was for a movie like Harry Potter. At number two, bringing in $302 million was Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. The Star Wars movies that I just kind of forget about. I remember all the promotion around them. But I feel like if you took away Episode One, Two, and 3... It wouldn't really matter. But at number one, and number one with ease, bringing in $403 million this year was Spider-Man. Do I need to go on why this movie was great? And then taking home Best Picture in 2002 was The Beautiful Mind, like I was saying earlier. It's rare for a movie to bring in that amount of money and also win an Oscar for Best Picture. Worst movie was a movie called Swept Away, which is a remake with Madonna. That took home the Razzie Award that year for Worst Movie. Other movies of note that came out in 2002, my personal favorite Disney movie, Lilo and Stitch, Catch Me If You Can, The Born Identity, Sweet Home Alabama, Scooby-Doo, Mr. Deeds, 8 Mile, The Rookie, Jackass the Movie, and one of my favorite low-budget movies called Spun. It was also a pretty big year for what I would describe as college movies, with movies like Orange County, Van Wilder, and Stealing Harvard come out. And I think that was a lot due to the success of movies like American Pie, Road Trip, everybody was looking for that next big comedic hit, and everybody was focused on college kids trying to hook up. Now, if I could only take one movie from 2002, this is a tough one because with Spider-Man being my favorite superhero and the original being one of my favorite, not just Spider-Man movies, but one of my favorite movies of all time, it's also the year that one of my favorite Disney movies came out of all time. And I think I would have to take Lilo and Stitch from 2002 because I would still have all the other Spider-Man movies when I think about it. It doesn't take away two or three or the amazing Spider-Man or another Tom Holland Spider-Man. So I could get my fix in other ways. Yes, I would lose out on a very big instrumental piece of not being able to watch that original Spider-Man. But I think when it comes to a movie that I would sit down and rewatch more and kind of get that same feeling as I was when I watched it as a kid, I think I would have to take Lilo and Stitch because I just feel like no other Disney movie could replace that for me. Not The Lion King, not even a Pixar movie like Toy Story. Like there's 
only a feeling I get from Lilo and Stitch that nothing else could recreate that. So I would take Lilo and Stitch with me. So that is 2002. Moving on now to movies turning 10 years old this year. And these are all movies that came out in 2012. I think this is where it gets interesting because in my mind, I don't imagine 2012 being 10 years ago. I was 21 years old. I was still in college. I had started working at the radio station in Austin. I had just come off of being an intern for the Bobby Bone Show and Bobby helped me get a job there working as a board operator. So I kind of shifted this year from going from being an intern to doing that job. I would, on occasion, when their executive producer was out, go fill in for them. So that's kind of where I was in my life. My movie obsession was full on by now. I would go to the theater probably still once a week, maybe once every two weeks. But I think where my obsession was a little bit more was watching everything on Netflix, but also going and renting things at the Redbox, which was a lot more prevalent than I could walk to a 7-Eleven go rent a movie for a dollar, go home and watch it, and then go back and get another movie for a dollar. And setting the stage in 2002, outside of movies, if you were to go and turn on the radio, you probably could not escape this song by Godier. So looking at the biggest movies to come out in 2012, at number 10 was Madagascar 3, bringing in $216 million. At number nine was one of my favorite comedies, bringing in $218 million. It is Ted, starring Mark Wahlberg and Seth MacFarlane as the voice of Ted, which is basically just a little bit skewed version of Peter Griffin, which he also does the voice of. Actually was watching this movie the other day. Very ridiculous, very dumb, but still very funny to me. At number eight was The Hobbit, bringing in $228 million. At number seven is a lot of people's favorite Disney movie of the last 10 years. It is Brave, which made $237 million. At number six is The Amazing Spider-Man, bringing in $262 million. Rounding out the top five, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 2 comes in at number five, making $286 million. I only watched the first one in theaters, and that was before there was any hype really built around it. I remember it was like maybe the second week it came out and my sister wanted to go watch it. So she, my brother and I all went to go watch Twilight. I thought it was all right. And then just a couple weeks later, it was full on Twilight fandom. I myself never really got into the movies, never read the books, but there's even now kind of a Twilight resurgence with the movies being on Netflix now. I feel like we're maybe 10, 15 years away before those movies get remade. Like if there's any book franchise that starts to get its remake whether it be like hunger games harry potter i think twilight kind of is the one would be the one to do it at number four is skyfall which made 290 million dollars i feel like the james bond movies are kind of like the ncis of movies like who is watching these movies and loving them i get it if you're listening to this now thinking i'm completely ridiculous by saying that I have just never met anybody who loves the James Bond movies, but every time they come out, they make a lot of money. Who is watching James Bond? Who loves James Bond? I feel like it's kind of people who only come out once every four years to watch a movie, and it's James Bond. More power to you if you love James Bond. I just never really understood it. At number three is the book series and movies I actually really got into, bringing in $408 million was The Hunger Games. And I felt like The Hunger Games hit me a little bit different than Harry Potter. I was never fully obsessed with the Harry Potter books. Maybe I'm weird in saying that I actually love the movies more than the books. But when it came to Hunger Games, I really loved 
the description in those books more than I did the movies. I almost didn't really enjoy the first one so much because I was such a big fan of the book. I was kind of one of these people saying that the book was better than the movie just because the book was so much more descriptive on the actual hunger in the Hunger Games. Like that was completely taken out of the movie. And the whole reason Katniss volunteering herself so her sister didn't have to go be a part of the Hunger Games was really because of how much their family struggled just to eat and how in the book she's just described as being this frail but smart character. A lot of that kind of doesn't even appear in the movie. They just get into the actual Hunger Games. I still enjoyed seeing it in theaters. I felt like it was just very abrupt, a very abbreviated version of the movie, but I would go on to probably like Catching Fire more. And then at number two was The Dark Knight Rises, bringing in $448 million in 2012. An underrated one, I feel, in the Dark Knight franchise. Actually watched this movie in IMAX and felt like Christopher Nolan really went in on exploring every bit of the screen i love the opening scene in this movie and i really loved bane as a villain in this and how i felt when i first watched the dark knight rises is i almost liked bane more as a just straight on villain that i did joker joker was a great character but i felt like he was almost bigger than batman in that movie i almost didn't really see him as like a driving force as a real threat then i just liked him watching wreak havoc but when it came to The Dark Knight Rises, I loved the battle between Bane and the feeling that Batman could just not defeat him. Bane just pretty much taking him to shreds, getting him at his very lowest. I just thought that was very powerful, but I didn't love the ending. And I feel like that's what's held a lot against The Dark Knight Rises is the ending. Kind of lends a little bit lackluster. And then at number one, bringing in a whole lot more than number two at $623 million was The Avengers crazy to think that the Avengers came out 10 years ago and all the Marvel madness we've had in between. The Avengers just really changed the game on what a movie could be. And I think so many kind of franchises have tried to mimic that with the Justice League, the Suicide Squad, and have just not been able to replicate it ever again. The other thing I kind of find looking at these three years, 2012, 2002 and 1992 at the number one spot on every single year is a superhero comic book movie and I know people and I know people tend to criticize that there are so many superhero movies now I know there are more of them now but it's not like it's a new concept I think they're movies that we've loved forever and will continue to love forever and just prove to be movies that will actually get us to go to a theater to watch Looking at the big awards this year, the movie that took home Best Picture at the Oscars was The Artist. The movie that the Razzies voted as the worst movie was The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. An easy movie to pick apart. Some other big movies that came out in 2012 were Wreck-It Ralph, 21 Jump Street, Argo, which is one of my favorite dramas, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, Men in Black 3, which I think was the worst movie of 2012, my least enjoyed theater experience of that year. You also have a Jennifer Lawrence, Bradley Cooper classic with Silver Linings Playbook, Looper, and Chronicle. If I could only take one movie from 2012. Again, it's hard not to take that number one. The number one is always just the best with the Avengers. And that being such an instrumental part of all the Marvel movies. The Dark Knight Rises makes a pretty good case. Uh, but the Hunger Games would be tough not to watch ever again. But you really can't rule out a compilation of all the best superheroes with one of the best villains. I'd hate to sound basic, but I'm going with the number one of the year, The Avengers. 
So that's it. That's a look at 1992, 2002, and 2012. Hope you enjoyed that look through history. Coming up, I'll get into my spoiler-free review of Encanto after this. Going to get into a spoiler-free movie review now, actually coming to us by listener request. This is from Kara Kathleen on Instagram, who messaged me asking when I was going to review this movie. I wanted to wait till it came out on Disney Plus and more people had the chance to watch it. And I also think with the release of it on Disney Plus, the soundtrack has had such great success in the last just week, breaking in some crazy records that we'll get into. But before we get into it, here's just a little bit of the trailer of Encanto from Disney. Super strong like Luisa. The donkey's got out again. On it! Or effortlessly perfect like Senorita Perfecta Isabella. But Mama, why am I the only one that didn't get a gift? You're just as special as anyone else in this family. You just healed my hand with an arepa con queso. So what this movie is about, it's a family with a bunch of magical powers. They live in the mountains in this town in Colombia, and they all live under one roof. Not only do they all have magical powers, but the house itself does, and it's kind of a character of its own. The story follows the main character named Mirabel, who is the only member of the family not to have her own powers. So what happens is the family always has this big celebration, this big reveal of one of the kids discovering what their power is, what their gift is. And why all her brothers and sisters have these amazing things they can do, whether it be like her sister Luisa, who is very strong and can move buildings. One of her other sisters can control the weather. Another can make all these beautiful flowers grow. Another one can shapeshift and become any other person. And one can heal people through food. She is struggling because she never had anything and doesn't feel as special. But where the struggle comes in is now the house seems to be in danger and the magic surrounding their home seems to be fading away and she has to find a way to save it. Basically what this movie is about the entire family kind of controls everything going on around the town. But what I kind of took away from it is all the members of the family kind of represent somebody that maybe you know in your life. And their power is greatly associated with that. Her sister who is strong is kind of the one who carries the entire family and the entire weight of everybody's problems kind of literally falls on her shoulders in this movie. The other sister who can control the weather is maybe somebody in your life who... Their moods can quickly change, and you know it. And then you have the grandmother in the movie who is the one kind of overbearing of everything and making sure everything remains exactly how it is. So I like this movie, but I think there are a few things that kept me from loving it. I thought the premise was great, and like the first 30 minutes of this movie, I was really into it. I loved the idea of Mirabel, you know, struggling that she didn't have something that makes her different from all her siblings. She didn't have that one unique characteristic and when it came to people kind of inadvertently taking digs at her because she never found her power, she, you know, dealt with that. I really felt like it was going to go on a little bit more of an emotional journey for her that I just never felt like it really quite got there. When it came to the animation in this movie, I think it's some of the best that Disney has ever done. There were very small details when it came to these characters from the hair. Like you could literally see like the hair on their arms and different expressions really come to life in this. And I think that's where Disney really kind of shined in this movie. But I felt like while the premise was so strong in the beginning, 
over the course of the entire movie, I felt like the movie became a little bit average. And I think that's greatly due to it being a musical and then bursting into song. Again, I'm not the biggest into musicals. And when it comes to having to tell the story throughout song, I feel like it kind of loses that emotional connection for me. Now, some people, and why I think a lot of people love this movie, is because of the songs, is because of the music, because it kind of brings it to life in a different way. And you find people now, you know, making this soundtrack number one on Billboard, going back and listening to these songs. But that's really not what I go into wanting out of a Disney movie. But I kind of feel like I'm probably going to have the same kind of situation I had when I first saw Moana in theaters. I didn't love Moana in theaters because of the same reason that I felt like the songs took me out of it a little bit. And maybe three or four years later when I rewatched it and understood the story a little bit more, I then found those songs resonating a lot more. And now that is one of my favorite Disney movies. But I also think I'm having a little bit of Lin-Manuel Miranda fatigue Kind of the same way I'm having Ryan Reynolds fatigue is they are just in everything right now. And I get it. He is the best probably and the first choice when it comes to wanting a musical. But after seeing In the Heights, after seeing Tick, Tick, Boom, and seeing how much of an influence he had on this music, even though he does it really well, I was kind of wanting Disney to do something a little bit different. And it's something about Disney movies now getting away from not having a villain and instead just focusing on the struggles like within a family. I think it's kind of a different take for me that I don't know if it's working quite as well. I mean, if I had to assign someone a villain of maybe personifying them of somebody I would know in my life, I would say the grandma is the kind of the villain in this of not listening to Mirabelle and making it seem like everything is fine at the very start of the movie, even though things are not fine. But what I did at the end of the movie really enjoy about this is the representation that this movie brings into Latin culture and seeing things that resemble things that I would be more familiar with from, you know, growing up in a, a Mexican household, also seeing how some of those same traits, same foods translate to a family like this from Colombia. So above me not fully enjoying the movie as I thought I was going to, I really have to commend Disney for portraying these characters and even making a movie like this. But the thing that's really just the most surprising to me is how successful this soundtrack has been with the soundtrack being at number one right now at the time I'm recording this on the Billboard chart and for one of the songs being the biggest Disney hit from an animated movie since 1995. And that means it's now surpassed Let It Go, which came from Frozen in 2014. So I do have the top five most successful songs from Disney movies, and this is based on commercial sales, billboard charts. At number five is now Let It Go, which was able to reach number five back in 2014. And it's beaten out now by We Don't Talk About Bruno from Encanto, which... And I think why that is surprising to me is I just remember when Let It Go came out from Frozen, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song or seeing somebody singing along to it on YouTube. I just felt like Let It Go had much more of a cultural impact to where everybody in America probably knew that song. People had it as their ringtone. And it's just surprising how fast We Don't Talk About Bruno has made it to number four on the charts. It also kind of just shows how much of an impact it has when a movie goes on to streaming. 
and for all these records to be coming out now. But at number three, another movie that peaked at number four was Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas by Vanessa Williams. Can you At number two was another song that peaked at number four back in 1994. It is Elton John's Can You Feel the Love Tonight from The Lion King. Can you feel the love I mean, I think that's the song I think about when I think about songs from Disney movies. But at number one is a song that went number one in 1993 from Aladdin, A Whole New World. <laughs> So that's just a look at some other big Disney songs. So I'm just surprised to see the soundtrack being as big as it is and people loving it as much as they did. Because, I mean, when it comes to what I thought the best songs were from Encanto, for me, I wouldn't have picked We Don't Talk About Bruno. I think I probably would have picked Surface Pressure, but that's also probably because Luisa was the character I identified with the most. And really, for me, I thought the most memorable character of the entire movie. But if I had to rate Encanto, I would give it 3.5 out of 5 donkeys. A good Disney movie that I think could have been great if it would have had a stronger Act 3. It was close to being a 4, honestly. But the thing I said out loud when the movie finished and the last scene hit, I was like, oh, that's it? That's how they're ending it? So that's why I give it a 3.5 for Encanto. Time now for the part of the podcast where I break down a movie trailer of a movie coming to you very soon in theaters or on streaming. It's time to head down to Movie Mike's Trailer Park. Today, it is a streaming movie called The Sky is Everywhere. It's from A24 and it's coming out on Apple TV Plus on February 11th, right in time for Valentine's Day. Here's just a little bit of the trailer for The Sky is Everywhere. How are you doing? Because your grandma and I have been a little worried about you. My sister is dead. There's no more music in me. No more dreams in me. I've lost the one person on Earth who understood me. How is school? Bad as expected. He's a new boy in honor band. Hey, you must be Lennon Walker. So what this movie is about, it's actually based on a book by the same name, also called The Sky is Everywhere. And the book is about this high school girl who loses her older sister and then is kind of struggling with her death being so sudden. And then she becomes, at least in the book, romantically involved with the sister's boyfriend who passed away because they're able to bond over having the same feelings of grief and loss and kind of dealing with that together But then there's also a new kid in town that they both have the same love of music where you kind of hear at the end of that trailer. So it's the main character dealing with these two close relationships. I had actually just never heard of this book. I told my wife about it. She's now added it to her reading list. So hopefully when the movie comes out, we'll watch it and she can give that review of how the book is different from the movie. Something I'm always kind of curious to see how they adapt The movie does star Jason Segel, but also just a lot of newcomers in this movie. Why I'm interested in this movie, where the plot doesn't sound like something I would be fully into, I do like book-to-movie adaptations. 
It's also coming from A24, which is a studio that I always just give the benefit of a doubt. And they have very unique romantic movies. So I don't feel like this is going to be a very straight on kind of romance or even a little bit of romantic comedy. There's always just kind of edge to them with movies they've done like The Spectacular Now or even like Lady Bird. I think it's going to have a little bit of an edge to it. But visually, I really love how this movie looks. I love a movie with a good color palette. And while watching this trailer, seeing the burst of color and it having a unique, almost warm feel to it, I'm just a fan of if a movie is aesthetically pleasing to the eye, it just keeps me more focused into it. And it just feels like even though maybe it's a romantic story that's been kind of touched on before, having this whole fresh look on it makes me more inclined to watch it. I like the special effects they have added in there from like the music notes exploding on the one scene where she sees the other guy. And it also helps that it's coming out right around Valentine's Day. We're all watching movies that make us feel romantic or that loving feeling. And I always like watching something new. And on top of the fact that it's coming out on Apple TV+, Plus, I feel like they're really going to get more into the movie game this year. They're very kind of slow with the content they're coming out with over there, whether it be a series here, a series there. They really haven't had that one big Apple TV Plus movie hit yet that's made people go over there just for that. I don't think this one will be it for them, but if they can keep putting out movies that I'm interested in, and also landing movies with well-known actors, I think it'll justify the subscription rate, which is actually probably the cheapest one I have right now. Again, that movie is called The Sky Is Everywhere. It comes out on February 11th on Apple TV+. And that was this week's edition of Movie Minds Trailer Park. I do have a little bit of movie news here I want to touch on. First up is the Batman has officially released its runtime at two hours and 55 minutes. And that's not even including the credits. And when you look at all the other Batman movies, The Dark Knight was two hours and 45 minutes. So it is beating that out by 10 minutes, making it the longest Batman movie ever released in theaters. And I, for one, am excited about that. I tweeted that I probably would have watched this movie even if it was four hours long. And just the vibes I've been getting from the trailers and seeing the stories come out about this movie, it seems like it's going to need all two hours and 55 minutes to get this story across. Because what they are doing here is reintroducing Batman in a whole new world, in a whole new story. I feel like the first hour is going to have to set that stage. And then developing all the other characters with the Riddler and the Penguin and Catwoman. I'm just hoping the long runtime really opens itself up for a lot of action, which they've been showing in the trailers. A lot of explosions, a lot of fighting. I hope it's a movie I end up watching and never even question how long it is. I see some people a little bit skeptical about that, of three hours being a pretty long time to spend in a movie theater having to go pee, and some people saying they're opting out for waiting until it comes out on HBO Max, which, if you want that option, that's there for you too, but you're going to have to wait 45 days, and I'm not going to do that. And the longest movie that I've ever seen in theaters was Endgame at three hours and two minutes, and that was a movie that just warrants being that long. But also coming off of just watching Zack Snyder's Justice League, which clocks in over four hours. I'm just a little bit more into watching long content right now and not being afraid of a long movie. If it's really good, done the right way. You know, if someone sits down to watch three or four episodes of an hour long TV show, nobody panics because it's all part of the plan. But when somebody puts out a three hour long movie, well, then everybody loses their minds. And if you didn't catch that, that is an adaptation of a quote from The Dark Knight. 
All right, so that's all I wanted to talk about in movie news there. There was one other news story I had here pulled up, but I kind of realized that there's a spoiler in that, so I'll save that for another episode. And before I hop out of here, what I do every single week is give a shout out to one of you who listens and posts about the podcast, whether it be you tagging me in your Instagram story, sending me a tweet at Mike Distro, or emailing in at moviemikeD at gmail.com. And this week, the shout out goes to Keegan O'Donnell. Thanks for tagging me in your Instagram story, listening to last week's episode of the best movies that are 90 minutes or less. And not only do I love when you guys tag me in your Instagram story, whether it be just the screenshot of your app or you listening in your car, it also shows that I always do this part of the podcast right at the very end. And that means you listen to the entire episode. You didn't start it and get tired of me ranting about movies. You listen to the entire thing. So that's a shout out within itself. Thank you for listening all the way through to this week's episode. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Go out and watch good movies. And I will talk to you next week. Later. Later.